Why are we here? We could answer that in many different ways. <clears throat> but certainly, our collective personal aspiration has a lot to do with our being here. There's also at play an intricate, infinite weaving of conditions. This place is here. It's available to us. There are dozens of volunteers that helped uh, this come to be. There has been interest in the Dharma in the West for 30 or 40 years. All of these are factors in allowing us to be here. There's one other condition that plays a significant part in our being here. And to reveal it, I want to tell a story. It is said hundreds or thousands of eons ago, there was an ascetic practicing in the then current India who had practiced so diligently that if he had heard a single teaching of the Buddha of liberating the mind, he would have become uh, immediately uh, liberated. But this ascetic, on one of his rounds, alms rounds in the morning in the village, saw that the villagers were all excited about something and inquired and found that the Buddha Dipankara, the Buddha of that day, was coming to town and the villagers were preparing for him. So the ascetic, Sumedha, thought that he too would go visit or see the arrival of this Buddha, and got his place along the roadway that the Buddha would enter. And when the Buddha came into view, this ascetic could recognize the nobility of the Buddha through its radiance and demeanor. and. He was so moved by the appearance and his understanding of this being that he vowed, he made an internal silent vow to himself that one day he too would like to become a Buddha. Well, Dipankara Buddha, having the capacity of a Buddha mind, uh, recognized that this ascetic on the side of the road had just made a vow to become a Buddha. Uh, did a quick scan of the karmic record and uh, <laughs> and saw that indeed this ascetic would in some far future lifetime become a Buddha. 2,500 years ago, the being, that life, that mind stream uh, took form in a prince born in India who, undergoing years of spiritual practice, 
became the Buddha of our time, Gautama Buddha, and taught his realization of the truth for 45 years. And then for 2,500 years, those teachings have been carried on, passed down, practiced and realized by millions of others in order to arrive here for us so many years or eons later. Most of us don't know that our being here is conditioned in part by the vow or the intention, the aspiration of this ascetic Sumedha, hundreds and hundreds, thousands of years ago. We don't know that. And yet, without that vow, without there being a Gotama Buddha, why would we be here? Through this story, we can see the, or we can sense, the power of intention. And we can see the power of a pure mind's intention. And we can see that this intention, due to its power and its purity and subsequent actions, came to fulfillment. It's not accidental. It's not wishful thinking. It's not just by hoping to one day become a Buddha that it happened, but it's because of the purity of the intention and the subsequent uh, fulfilling of that aspiration. It is necessary to have a vision of the vastness of time to allow this possibility into your mind. But our aspiration and the karmic act of intending to fulfill it, it has no less potential. There is no one and no thing that can stop you from fulfilling your aspiration if you allow time and patience to uh, unfold. Think about that. If you want to be free of suffering, if you make that aspiration, if you make that vow, if you have that intention, and you're patient and persistent, nothing can stop you. There are many conditions, including that vow, that aspiration, that contribute to our being here. We were born some years ago as a human. That's one condition. We had an interest and resonated when we heard the Dharma. That's another condition. We have 
aroused some sense of urgency to practice and have come on this retreat. That's another condition. Maybe our anticipation of uh, future suffering, growing old, getting sick, passing away with an unknown future existence ahead impels us to practice. Those are additional conditions. All of these conditions and more are weaving this moment into being. But one powerful condition is karma. Karma is action. Karma is intention. It is the law of moral causation. In its most simple form, karma or the law of karma states the quality of the intention when you think, speak, or act conditions results of a similar moral flavor. If we act out of kindness, generosity, understanding, compassion, the result will be pleasant, both immediately in the present moment and subsequently. On the other hand, if an action is fueled by a very limited view, a self-centric view that is greedy or aversive or confused, the result both then and in the future is unpleasant. We could say that the intention plants a seed in this mind stream. And when conditions ripen, that seed sprouts and eventually bears fruit. Powerful intentions, like the intention of the ascetic Sumedha, condition powerful results. Insignificant intentions condition minor results. But let's not make it too simplistic and think it's a tit for tat. If I do this, I get it in return. The law of karma is one of those great imponderables, or the working of karma, the Buddha said, is imponderable. There are many causes for each effect. There are many effects from each intention. The law of karma operates at all time, whether we know about it or not. And the only time that intention rests and we're not creating karma is when we're asleep, which is its own karma. Sometimes when we hear about the law of karma, uh, we question it. There's well-known uh, Buddhist scholars 
among us or contemporary in the world today who question karma and its workings. But how did we ever learn to believe that the sun is the center of our solar system, not the earth? The sun does not revolve around the earth, contrary to our direct and immediate perception day by day. We know otherwise. How did we ever learn, as a human race, the laws of chemistry and physics and the laws of seeds that says if you plant an apple seed and you cultivate it, you'll get an apple tree? Not a mango tree or an orange tree. But this is the law of seeds. It's the law of seasons. It's the natural, physical, chemical laws of seasons. These are natural laws. And they are the articulation of what has been observed by those who can understand what they see. Well, the law of karma is an articulation of what has been observed by those who can see the unfolding of the mind, the unfolding of actions. Those beings that have spent years, decades, whole lifetimes just observing the mind in a very subtle, careful, sensitive way have articulated what they've discovered and seen. They didn't make it up. The Buddha didn't make it up. Others didn't make it up. It's an articulation of what's been observed. We don't have to believe it, but when you hear the teachings of karma, intention, producing, or conditioning actions, it's good to hold an open space in the mind and suspend your doubt and continue practice. See for yourself whether there's any support or whether the mind comes to any resonance with what you understand about the law of karma. Why is the right view of karma so important to us? First, it can be a powerful ally in our practice. If we understand the law of karma, it supports making the effort that you've made today, even though you may not have gotten the result you wanted. It helps us, it offers a way to understand the pleasant and unpleasant experiences that we endure or receive from unknown conditions. Who can explain why some sittings are so pleasant and some are so unpleasant when we appear to be doing the same thing each time? The right view of karma can support and sustain our making of right effort 
with confidence. It can help us to adopt a wise attitude towards changing experience. It can help to order and regulate our life, offering some guidelines and a careful attention to our motivation and intention. It can help us to understand the power of habit and the power of awareness. Now, sometimes when we hear about the law of karma, we assume that the law of karma controls everything, that everything we experience is a karmic result. That's not true. The Buddha said that's not true. You know, because it rains, that's not karma. Because an apple falls from a tree and hits you, that's not karma. There's other laws, there's other conditions at play. So we should not assume that everything that's experienced is determined by karma. Karma doesn't determine. It conditions, but it doesn't decide everything. So how can we apply this understanding of karma in our life? If we know that karma is intention, and intention fuels all of our actions, thoughts, speaking, and behavior, and that there is a greater effect from a greater effort, we'll be careful. We'll pay closer attention to the motivation for doing what we do. When I say motivation or intention, I mean there are two elements. One is the motivation, the rationale, the justification for doing what we do. It's not easy to know why we do what we do if we're not paying very careful attention. We often act with mixed motives, or blindly, or out of habit, or out of believing it's expected of us, or it's something that we used to do, we still do, without really knowing why we're doing it. There's also the element of the impulse in the mind. What is it that moves us out of complacency, out of stillness, out of uh, inaction, into action? What is it that moves us? Why is it we can tolerate something for so long and then at some point, no longer? The only way we can know what moves us to act, to speak, to do what we do, is to pay very careful attention. And when we understand the consequences of acting without awareness, we're encouraged or inspired to pay attention to begin to understand more clearly, more in a more refined way, why we do what we do.
What makes a karmic act powerful? What makes our intentions effective, if you will? Because the ascetic Sumedha had an intention, and it was very powerful, continuing to have effect hundreds of thousands of years later on millions of people. Well, I'm sure you've had intentions that you wish had similar power and may have been just totally insignificant result. What makes an intention powerful? Well, one is the amount of energy in the mind, the activity of the mind, how interested, how healthy, how energetic the mind is. A sluggish mind can have all kinds of intentions and nothing results from it, or very little. On the other hand, a very energetic mind who is, that is uh, very clear about its intention and very uh, forceful about its intention can have a more noticeable effect. There's also the frequency with which that intention arises in the mind. If something just passes through a single time and is not picked up and repeated, the chances of having a powerful effect are pretty slim. On the other hand, if something is so important to you that you frequently arouse that intention, arouse that aspiration, and you repeatedly energize it in your mind, the strength of that karmic act and the frequency of it grows. And so the result or the resultant of that act also becomes more powerful. There's a third factor that's important to consider, and that is the purity of the mind that arouses that intention. And when I say purity of mind, I mean how concentrated, how clear, how um, uncontaminated that mind is, how collected the mind is. Because the collected mind is not dispersed. When you turn a fully concentrated or a very concentrated collected mind towards an intention, it's not kind of there, partially there, and a little bit dispersed. It's all there. All of the mind, or more of the mind, is moving in that direction. A concentrated mind also sees the means to the end. A concentrated mind is clear. There's greater understanding in a collected clear mind. So to have an aspiration, have an intention that you hope will produce or condition a certain result, if it's totally off base because the mind is confused and deluded, it's not going to happen. So the clearer, the more collected, the more concentrated the mind, the more powerful the result. 
Now we should understand that when we talk about the potential of an intention to produce or condition a result, we don't mean that somehow you're carrying it around as something you've got to do later as a to-do list. It's not that at all. The potential is within the seed. An apple seed has the potential within it to produce an apple tree. There's no apple tree in there, no little baby apple tree in there. But the potential is there. But the seed itself is not sufficient. That's clear, we know that. That seed needs to be planted in fertile soil. It needs, the apple tree or the apple seed needs to have the conditions of sun, water, soil, fertilizer, and care and attention. And then with a lot of good luck, it'll produce a tree. I've been trying to grow trees on Maui. I know how hard it is. It's easy to plant a tree. It's really hard to keep them alive and growing, considering the uh, innumerable conditions that affect the growth of plants. So to, in our mind, the seed that we plant in the mind or in the mind stream needs supportive conditions. If the supportive conditions aren't there or it's not ripe or if it's, uh, the time is not right, uh, that seed doesn't produce result. In the mind, supportive conditions are drawn to strong intention past karma, material resources, understanding, all of these are important. I saw this in my own practice when after I'd done uh, a few retreats, I was at the Meditation Center in Massachusetts and the monk Tongpulu Sayadaw from Burma came to America, came to the Meditation Center to offer some teachings. And Tongpula Sayadaw was one of the first Burmese monks to come to America. And he has a history that some of you may know. He's one of these monks that wandered into a cave when, his, when he was fairly young, stayed in the cave practicing for 16 years alone. At that, after that amount of time, he realized his teacher had died, came out of the cave. Sure enough, his teacher died, took a year to find a successor to the monastery, went back in the cave for another 17 years practicing solitary meditation. And then he came out, came to America to teach us what he knew. I'd done one or two retreats and I said, okay, what do you know? <laughs> More than what I heard him say, I was so struck by what I felt or what I thought a monk was. Of course, I didn't, I didn't really know. But somehow I was moved by, I think, really the dedication, the uh, commitment, uh, the purity, the simplicity of this person that I saw. And I was touched by that. And in my mind, or in my heart, more than my mind, I felt like, I want to do that. I want what he's got. 
wasn't greed so much as aspiration. But I didn't know anything about becoming a monk. I didn't know how to, what to, I didn't know, didn't know anything. And so it didn't happen for eight years. But during those eight years, I practiced Dharma and got clearer, met other monks, got a little clearer about what the lifestyle of a monk was. And later, when the Dharma had ripened in, my, in me, in the mind a little more, when the uh, material conditions and family conditions allowed me the opportunity to uh, go to Burma and practice, then I was able to go to Burma, ordain as a monk, and practice then. The conditions had to support the intention. Where the seed of intention lands, karmically, is in the soil of our present state of mind. However our mind is now is the soil for some karmic seeds. If for example, we have planted unwholesome seeds in the mind, but we now are practicing the Dharma where we're keeping the mind pure and clean and heading in a uh, awakening direction. Those unwholesome seeds don't get support for practice. A former life of crime and all the seeds that get planted there and then don't have much opportunity to manifest or sprout in a situation like this. On the other hand, if we had taken up a life of crime, any former Dharma practice that we'd done probably wouldn't have much opportunity to arise because of the current state of the mind. So as we purify our minds through practice, as we purify our understanding, as we purify our speech and behavior, the karmic seeds that we planted of purity that could produce a beneficial result are more likely to have the opportunity to bear fruit. But the primary effect of karma is in conditioning how we feel. Whether we feel happy, neutral, or unhappy. This is the primary effect of karmic action. It doesn't uh, control our physical condition, but it affects how we feel about things in our life, the events of our life, the experiences of our life. During the time of the Buddha, he clearly saw that beings, everyone, wants to be happy. We want to be happy. So too, beings at the time of the Buddha wanted to be happy. And yet, because of the Buddha's understanding, he was able to see that what beings did in order to be happy was the very thing that made them unhappy. And so he was asked, why is it that some people are 
healthy and some are sickly. Why is it some people live to a very old ripe age and some die young? Why is it that some beings are very bright and intelligent and other beings are dull and have a hard time understanding anything? It's not accidental. It's a result of karmic actions. He responded, this is the way that leads to a short life. Those who kill live a short life. Those who don't kill live a long life. Those who injure others or have injured others in the past are more sickly. Those who have been kind uh, or non-harming uh, are more healthy. Those who have been or are angry and irritable, not so good looking. Those who have been very loving are more beautiful. And most importantly, he said, those who are not curious, not inquisitive, and don't inquire, remain dull, uncomprehending, not understanding. And those who are curious, questioning and inquiring into the way things are become wise. Passive practice isn't liberating. It really takes looking, understanding, really inquiring, how is it happening in the mind? Just taking a technique and applying it, come hell or high water, well, yeah, it'll be hell or high water. <laughs> but if you want to be liberated, it takes inquiry, really looking and, and seeking to understand the conditioning effect, how things are happening. What is it that's making things happen the way they are? This kind of inquiry is necessary for the understanding that ultimately frees the heart. We are the owners of our actions. We are the heirs of our actions. We originate from our actions. We are bound to our actions. And we take refuge in our actions. Because whatever it is that we are, it is the stream of karmic actions that will bear fruit in the future. Whatever we've acquired as far as name or fame or gains or reputation doesn't last. It certainly doesn't last longer in this lifetime. And yet the stream of the mind that continues, that goes on, is all that we own all that we inherit from ourselves, from all of our actions. It's said that karma produces results, both immediately and in the future. Sometimes it's really easy, it's clear, 
and we can see, we can confirm that present mental state is conditioning or conditions our present experience. When we get angry, when we act out of anger or speak out of anger, we don't have to wait for the result. It's pretty clear. We feel it in the body, we feel it in the mind, we feel it in the reaction of others towards us, and long after that, the heat of that anger has dissipated. When we reflect on it, when we remember it, when it comes to mind, we feel regret, we feel remorse, we feel bad all over again. We know that. We see that. You know, we can't deny it. We can't justify it. We can't pretend that it doesn't happen. We may not be able to stop it either. The habits of reactivity are deep, strong, powerful. It is through practice like we've been doing here today that we see over and over and over again the results of actions that we didn't see before. I'm sure you've seen it today. Personal history review of things we said, things we did, things we didn't say, things we didn't do, things others said and did or didn't. We feel them because mindfulness doesn't lie. It's so important to cultivate awareness, so important to cultivate mindfulness because it straightens out the mind. It stops the mind from deceiving itself, from believing its stories, because it cuts through the stories, the rationalizations, the justifications, and sees things as they really are. And when you're in an intensive retreat like this, where you're really not, uh, where you just, all of your effort is towards developing the mindfulness, developing the awareness. Uh, you don't have to prove anything. You don't have to explain anything. You don't have to justify anything to anybody. You just have to see it. And then you know. And once you know, because you've seen for yourself, who can take that knowledge away? You know, because you've seen, you've felt for yourself the effect of speaking and acting in skillful and unskillful ways. Don Juan, who was a teacher to Carlos Castaneda, said, the ordinary man or woman sees life's events as either blessings or curses. But the man or woman of knowledge and power sees all of life's events as an opportunity to gain liberation. It's through understanding. Whether something is pleasant or unpleasant is a result of prior karma. But what you do with it at this time is your present karma. We are constantly experiencing the result, as pleasant or unpleasant, of past karma. And how we respond or react 
to this present moment feeling plants the seed in the mind for the future. When we reflect on that, it offers us an understanding of painful experience. Painful, unpleasant experiences come. Not because we're doing something wrong, not because we're even being uh, or having an unwholesome state of mind at the present moment. They come as a result of prior karmic actions, unskillful actions. When we reflect on that, it offers us guidance in how to respond to present unpleasant conditions. If we respond with or we react with aversion, we're planting seeds of more unpleasantness. If we respond with awareness, wisdom, tolerance, understanding, we plant the seeds of pleasant experience. When we feel the unpleasantness of unskillful actions, we can learn to fear those feelings, fear those actions. This kind of fear is not the fear of aversion. It's the fear of wisdom. When you, out of wisdom, understand this action leads to pain, leads to affliction, leads to suffering in myself or others, it is wisdom anticipating consequences that conditions dropping it. If it's unskillful or acting on it, if it's skillful. So fear is not always aversion. Fear of consequences, anticipating painful future, anticipating painful consequences is wisdom because it guides us to make wise choices in the present. Mindfulness or awareness is an internal mentor. It guides us to make the right choice. Why? Because, as I mentioned, mindfulness doesn't lie. Mindfulness sees things as it really is. Wisdom understands it. When we see how impulsive our habits are, we have a choice of whether to react or respond. We can reconsider whether our reaction is skillful or not. But once we see thoughts, memories, intentions in the mind and how they are felt, and the, and the result, and how the results are felt, then we understand what the potential of karmic acts are. They lie in the mind like mind bombs, waiting to be stepped on carelessly. It is said that it is of greater karmic consequence to not understand karmic actions 
and to do something unskillful than to do it intentionally. Let me, say, let me repeat that. If you know something is unskillful and you do it anyway, of course it has some unpleasant karmic results. But if you don't know that action is unskillful and you do it, it has greater karmic consequence, greater unpleasantness. This is kind of counterintuitive, you know, because we kind of think, hey, if I didn't know, I mean, uh, who's to blame? Why am I to blame? But what we don't see is that the not knowing is ignorance, it's delusion. When we don't know something is unskillful, we can do it with reckless abandon, full intention, lots of energy, repeatedly. No second thoughts, no regret, no remorse. And all of that is just strengthening the unwholesome intention again and again and again. On the other hand, when we understand that something is unskillful, it's an unskillful act, it's unskillful to say that, it's unskillful to even think that, but we decide to do it anyway. We're a little tentative. We're a little, we got a few second thoughts. We have immediate regret. We feel the unpleasantness of it. We reflect on it later and say, I'm never going to do that again. And all of that serves to mitigate the karmic effect because we know it's unskillful. We don't energize it so much. We do it hesitantly, even though we do it. We do it hesitantly, or uh, not so frequently, or only half-heartedly, thinking in the back of our mind, ah, I'm not going to do this again. Last time. Yeah. Unknowing increases our suffering. Knowing weakens the suffering. If we try to stay mindful while we act unskillfully, you feel it as you do it. It's really hard. Mostly we, we go numb. We, go, uh, we get lost in our justification, our rationalization. We, we justify it to ourselves, And we lose touch with what's actually, how it actually feels in the moment. Awareness offers a great protection because it allows us to feel the way things really are. If we can stay present with the unskillful action, we'll feel it immediately. And <clears throat> it's important to remember that it's our own mind that is affected by what we think and what we say and what we do. It's not that someone out there is our karmic police, karmic master that's going to impose the result on us. It's in our own mind. You know, when we say or do or speak, the mind knows that. The mind will feel that. Nobody out there, no other being is going to impose it on you. We do not have to be anyone else's karmic master either. We don't have to see that they get their due. That's our karma if you do it. The thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. 
actions harden into habit and habit forms our character. So the Buddha said, watch the thought with care and let it spring from love and respect for others. The right view of karma reveals the dynamic unfolding of the mind. It's not a determinant. It doesn't determine how we'll be, but it offers a lesson from the past and offers an opportunity for the future. It is an alternative to believing in magic, believing in logic, or believing in mystery. With practice, we can gain an intuitive understanding of the lawfulness of cause and effect in the mind. It is a powerful support for a Dharma practice. It helps us make sense of our suffering. It helps us make use of our suffering. It helps us free ourselves from suffering. Padmasambhava, great mm, Tibetan teacher, said, though my view is as vast as the sky, meaning, though my understanding is as refined as how uh, anatta it all is, how dukkha it all is, how uh, anicca it all, how, how changeable things are. Though my view is as vast as the sky, my attention to the law of cause and effect is as refined as barley flour. Even enlightened beings experience the result of their karma. No one escapes the effects of karma. But all of our actions to fulfill morality, concentration, and to develop insight, understanding, is the karma that leads to the end of karma. Good karma leads to pleasant results. Bad karma leads to unpleasant results. But dharma karma leads to the end of karma. This, it is said, is the best karma. The unwinding of karmic action through developing the Dharma of the Eightfold Path. Mahasi Sayadaw, the kind of grandfather of our tradition of practice in Burma, says those who practice the Dharma sincerely in this life will surely have a pleasant existence and a beneficial rebirth. Surely have. If one wishes it. So let's sit for a moment. Let the words quiet down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.